Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Scott Stedman Podcast. Hopefully you have been enjoying the recent uh, content we have been putting out. Uh, so joining me again, as always, is uh, Micah Current. Micah, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's becoming a regular thing at the Scott Stedman Podcast. It is. I, I might have to change the name to Scott Stedman and Micah Current Podcast. <laughs> And then once I do that, then you're busy and you can't do podcasts with me anymore. I have to change it back to the Scott Stedman podcast. I will always make time. All right. So today, uh, I want to talk about something real quick. Um, there's an article that was uh, published in Christianity Today, Micah, uh, March 1st. So it's been, uh, as a time of recording, it's only been a few days, but there is a... Christian college called um, Gordon College that is in Massachusetts, and they are having an issue that they're trying to bring before the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and basically what the issue is addressing in a nutshell is if you are a professor at this Christian college, are you legally a minister? Now, the kind of let me go ahead and kind of read a little bit into this article. And this is that and we'll post the link to this article at our, on our um, description of this episode. But I want to go ahead and just kind of read it, it says um, at some point, the United States court will have will have to consider whether Christian college professors are legally ministers and who decide that and how Justice uh, Samuel Alito said in a statement on Monday. But the case of a formal social work professor suing Gordon College for denying her promotion is not quite right for those arguments, at least for now. Um, the court turned down Gordon's appeal to have Margaret DeWise Boyd's lawsuit dismissed based on the ministerial exception, which says that clergy are not protected by employment law because that would be excessive government interference into religious matters. Alito, however, released a statement saying there are still concerns about how ministers are being defined legally. It says the preliminary posture of the litigation would complicate our review, Alito wrote, but in an appropriate future case, this court may be required to resolve this important question. Uh, the statement was joined by three other conservative justices, Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Connett Barrett, signaling an interest in appeals from Gordon or other Christian colleges seeking exemption from anti-discrimination legislation. Um, for now, however, DeWay's Boyd's lawsuit against Gordon College can go forward in state court. She claims the school administration denied her promotion in 2017 against the recommendation of her department and the full faculty because she critiqued the school's stance on LGBT issues. Gordon argued it denied her promotion because she hadn't done enough scholarship. The school also sought to have the case dismissed because it considers uh, DeWay's uh, Boyd a minister. So. Micah, help me understand this correctly. The case for Gordon College does, um, dismissing the lawsuit and not giving a promotion is because this um, social work professor at the university saying she can't really sue them or go to court because technically she is a minister because she works at Gordon College, which is a Christian university. And because she's a minister, 
she has she doesn't have the right to sue them because that would compromise the religious institution in the state institution, basically a separation of church and state. So that's why she can't sue them. Or am I getting this right? Because it seems very legalistic jargon. So I don't understand what this is trying to say. Am I am I getting close to the ballpark? Am I completely off on this? Um, no, I think you're right. I, it's just, I think it's an interesting conversation uh, to have. Uh, I also think it's, uh, interesting that, you know, we've not had this conversation before, but like you're in seminary now, I went to seminary and schools do it differently. Um, different schools do things differently and that's their prerogative. Right. Uh, but like, I always ask the question, uh, so I went to seminary at Anderson University, which is a Church of God school. I'm ordained to the Church of God. I'm an ordained pastor, ordained clergy. Uh, but the process was separate from my seminary experience. So I went through Church of God ministries and um, leadership focus and uh, a district committee uh, through the state and through the district of which I was serving at the time in Southwest Ohio. And it was this big, you know, long process uh, where I was working in a ministry position, felt called by God, felt like I should be ordained, uh, go through the process, Um, went to the district, uh, which I was serving at the time, met with a group of people. And at that time, there was a kind of a merge and a new process called Leadership Focus, which was an online version of... Uh, credentialing for for the Church of God, so partnering with Leadership Focus in the district that I was uh, associated with at the time, which was Southwest Ohio, walked through that process. It took about three years. After that was done, they voted, ratified, and uh, basically said, "Hey, you're good to go. You're going to be ordained." And then I went to the State General Assembly, got, got ordained, got my certificate of ordination. All that to say, had nothing to do with my seminary experience. Nothing. Right. Yeah. And then when I was in seminary, uh, I had several conversations with professors and people that I took classes with and who I considered to be mentors and people who are also, you know, affiliated with the church of God. Now I had professors that were not church of God. They were Catholic and Methodist and, you know, they have different backgrounds of different churches and they were, uh, some of them were ordained. Some of them weren't. Um, but I, brought the question up several times while I was in seminary, why can't there be a track for ordination while you're in seminary? Meaning if you go through this process, when you graduate uh, with your degree, uh, whether it's a master's of divinity, a master of theological studies, master of arts and Christian ministries, whatever that may be, if you want to be ordained, when you graduate from seminary, you're going to be ordained at the same time. Now, if you didn't and you went the chaplain route, you wanted to be a college professor and teach ministry classes, uh, you know, continue your education like Scott, like you are doing a DMIN, like go for it. Right. Yeah. And you don't have to be ordained or you can do both. Like there's nothing wrong with either of those things. So back to this article, like I, I think you should have the choice whether you want to be ordained or not. Um, Because some people can teach ministry and some people can teach theology and some people can teach history of the Christian church. And 
not really serve in a ministry capacity within the local church. Yeah. Um, what do you think? So this, so this is a very interesting topic because we, we, we talk about, according to the article, Gordon College is saying, well, Deweese Boyd is a minister because she works at Gordon College. Gordon College is a Christian university, and they're, according to their culture, is if you are a professor at Gordon College, regardless if you are teaching a religion, if you're a part of the Bible and religion department, or if you're part of the social work department that uh, that DeWace Boyd is, then you are a minister. And they want you to integrate your faith into your teachings, whether it's Bible and religion, whether it's philosophy, whether it's social work, whether it's mathematics, teaching, education, um, those things need to apply. So from their definition of minister, it's basically, well, if you work at a Christian university, you are a minister. Whereas you're talking, you're talking about, well, I'm ordained. And that, and I think when we talk about ordination, that is a whole different process because being yep. ordained means that I feel the call. This goes back to our topic we talked about a few episodes back about, you know, what is calling and does calling really matter? You know, we feel that there's a calling in our lives. So then we take the steps to go through the ordination process to be ordained as a minister within our particular denomination, which for both you and me is the church of God. So I know for my, and I know for, and when did you, when did you start your ordination process? What year? 2014. Okay. 2014. Okay. So, so that's <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing. Cause I know when I went through the ordination process, this is before, um, and just to kind of educate our audience right now, I believe the, or the way the ordination process works is everything kind of goes through our national headquarters. So even though there's state involvement, but as far as the guidelines and everything else that comes from national. So, and so basically if I, and Micah, I'm not sure when all this took place. Cause I know when I took place, cause I started, I got ordained in 2010 and I didn't start my process till 2006. So everything was done by district and everything was done by state. So national, all national did is basically if the state says, yeah, you're ordained, the national just recognized it. So there was no national guidelines. It was done by state and by district, which was interesting because I went from Northeast Ohio. That's where I started my ordination. And then when I lived in London, my entire file and everything went to Central, and Central did it differently than Northeast Ohio. And I know London, we're talking with London, some other Ohio. People. Yeah, and then yeah, London, Ohio, not London, England. But then people who lived in Southwest Ohio, they had a whole different way of doing or with the different process for ordination candidates than they did with like Northeast Ohio or Central. So it was always different. Everything was there's nothing which made it very confusing. Um, but I do know that I had some pastors within my, who were going through the same process, who for me, I was in a different process because I was going to seminary. I was getting my master's of divinity and I was already taking a lot of 
church history, New Testament, Old Testament classes. So for me, my process was supposed to be, you know, one or two years and then I was done. For somebody who may have been like, let's say a construction worker who felt the call to be a pastor, they would go through the normal ordination process, but then they were also required to go online, whether to Anderson or, or um, Warner University, and they had to take some type of church history classes um, to kind of have that um, backing to before they could fully say from the state of Ohio saying, okay, we think that this person has received, done all the requirements they need to be, and we recommend them to be ordained, an ordained minister of the church of God. So there's a lengthy, either way, I think nationally, when Anderson kind of took over a lot of that, it kind of un, uniformed everything, even though there are some people who are cranky about that. Um, but overall, I think you start the process, you know, you're going to get out in three years because, and you're going to have mentoring pastors and you're going to be in a, a group, which for me, I wish I had that because a lot of it was just on my own, except for me and my mentoring pastor. And it was just me and him. And that was it. So I didn't have like a group of cohorts going through it together. So in some ways I liked my process, my, but in some ways I wish I went through what you and even I had a buddy who just got ordained uh, this past year. And he talked about his process. Like, man, I would love to go through the ordination process again, just to experience what you experienced. Cause I didn't get any of that. Cause I'm kind of like, well, mine was a little bit, person. My, mine was hodgepodge though. Mine was, mine was pretty ridiculous. It's probably a, it's a harsh word, but it was reality. Um, I was like on the tail end of like your experience, Scott, where you were like, feel called. I want to go meet with a group of people. They're going to you know pray over me and give me this. And I'm going to have a mentor pastor and I'm going to, uh-huh. you know, be ordained in three years. Right. And then leadership focus came along. And leadership yeah. focus was like the new tract yeah. to get ordained, which came from national offices, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in that time, I was pastoring at a church in Ohio, and then I moved to North Carolina, and I spent a year in North Carolina, and Ohio was supposed to transfer my file to North Carolina Ministries, which in North Carolina, it's North Carolina and South Carolina, which is, you know, they call it Carolina Ministries, which is both mm-hmm. North and South. And then... Uh, my wife got a job offer and we moved back to Ohio in 2016. And during that time, I continued to do leadership focus, but like my file got lost in the shuffle. So like my I ended file up got lost in the off. shuffle too. <laughs> right. So I came back to Ohio and, you know, there was a period of time where I wasn't doing it. And so that's why it took longer than what it should have. And then when I finished Leadership Focus, Scott, I went back to the, the Southwest Ohio Credentialing Board, Committee, whatever you want to call them. And I was told that just because I did Leadership Focus didn't mean that I was going to be ordained. That it was up to that committee and not the process. Wow. And I yeah. was I was confused because I thought that it was because leadership focus costs money and I paid for it out of my pocket. And, it, you know, like I was pretty upset with the process. Ultimately, you know, I had finished leadership focus. I, you know, met with that credentialing board again, and ultimately they ratified my being ordained, but I'm, I'm seeing a lot of friends now who are finishing this process. And instead of like, let's say that you finish in, you know, January they, uh, the standard for church of God is like 
in most circles you get ordained at like your general assembly, which is like your state, you know, conference for the year. Mm-hmm. And so usually those happen in the fall or in the spring. And so like, if you finish leadership focus in the spring and you don't want to wait nine months to get ordained, a lot of people are doing it within their local churches or the churches that they're serving at. And they'll have an ordination process. And then the state pastor, or the associate state pastor, or whoever, somebody from that ministry circle will come and be a part of your special day and, you know, pray over you, give you a certificate of ordination, and then you're considered ordained clergy. Um, I, that press process is just mind boggling to me. So like, you're telling me I don't have to do leadership focus, but in order to be ordained, have to do leadership focus, but it doesn't mean you're going to be ordained if you do leadership focus. So you can understand a little bit of the frustration in my voice when I say that's just a ridiculous process back to my seminary experience. Like there were professors I had that were ordained. There were professors that I had that weren't ordained. There were professors from church of God, Methodist, you know, Catholic various backgrounds, but weren't ordained. Right. Mm-hmm. So like it, their goal in life was to be a chaplain. Their goal in life was to be a college professor. And they had no desire to preach or teach or work in the local mm-hmm. church on a full-time level. They, they'll go to church. They'll be a part of a church, but they won't. They, they're not preaching on Sundays, right? They're yeah. just teaching. They're, they're teaching at the collegiate level and they're teaching, you know, history of the Christian church or Old Testament history or New Testament history. They're very much scholars and they very much, you know, believe believe in, in the validity of scripture and God's word, but they don't have any, like you're talking about Scott being ordained and feel that call in their life to be a pastor. And yeah. I think that's okay too. Um, in reference to this article, the, the headline is Supreme court of the United States of America won't weigh whether Christian college professors are ministers for now. Um, what if they are? What if they're already ordained? Let's say what's on the flip side of that, where, you know, I had a professor who was ordained in the church of God, but taught history of the Christian church. So like, does this mean they're going to take their credentials away? Mm-hmm. Does this mean that they're not going to, cons- you know, are they not going to accept them? Like, but like at the same time, Scott, like, why would you have to accept them? Yeah. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like I can, be, I can, I can teach a, a church history class, a church of God history class at a church of God seminary and be ordained in the church of God. But those two things are separated. Do they have to be connected from in order for me to teach? And do they have to be connected in order for me to preach? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think here there's a couple of, there's a couple of quotes from this article. Uh, first quote comes from uh, Eric Baxter, who's the vice president of Beckett. And he told Christianity Today, uh, the ministerial exception should apply to anyone whose work has a religious function, even if they're not ordained and not considered a minister in any church. The phrase ministerial exception is perhaps unfortunate, he said. The ministerial exception does not require you to be a minister. It applies to anyone doing an important religious function. I think maybe a better term would have been important religious function. And then later we see uh, Justice Scott uh, Kafker Right. While it may be true that Gordon employs Christians and Christians have an undeniable call to minister to others, this line of argument appears to oversimplify the Supreme Court test, suggesting that all Christians teaching at a Christian school 
and colleges are necessarily a minister. So basically, the two schools of thoughts here is at one hand, if you are a Christian and you are, even if you're a Christian, you know, there it may be a thing that we may be called to minister to others, whether that's helping out and serving soup at a soup kitchen. I'm ministering to people, even though I'm not ordained or not a pastor of a church and have the, the, I guess the legal title of minister, but I am a minister to the community in which I'm serving, whether that's a soup kitchen, whether that's teaching students at a Christian school, whether that's a Christian elementary school or a Christian college. And then there's the definition of I am a minister, which means I am recognized by the my denomination. Or even if I know there's some churches, I'm not sure which denominations, where if there's ministers, people who feel the call to minister within their churches, that they will go through a leadership focus within their own churches. I think maybe certain Baptist churches may do this not saying it's the SBC, but at least some Baptist churches where it's like, well, if you feel the call, like if you're at my church, I'm your pastor, Micah, and you feel the call to ministry, then I'm working with you. I'm going through a process, almost like an ordination process with you, but then I will recognize you as a pastor, that you are a minister of this church, and then I'll make sure that you have your tag to go visit people, that you have some type of piece of paper that says you are a minister, and even make sure that you're paperwork is all set with whatever state you're in the state of Ohio. So then you can perform weddings or funerals that you have the title of minister. Yeah. I so have. there's, so yeah. So I think with that, there's definitely the word minister, but when we take that word and we break it down, there's definitely two camps. There's me being a Christian who's ministering to people. And then there's me who legally and officially recognized by my denomination and even through state paperwork that I am a legal minister who can be a pastor of a church and do religious ceremonies, weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I think it's funny too, not fun, but like, I think it's interesting too that like, <clears throat> I have friends who, who have worked in large churches, like rather like huge churches, right? Um, who the church itself has their own, like you're talking about ordination process. Like they go through, you know, a process of classes with other leaders in their church who, you know, because it's a larger church, they may have two, 300 people that are just on staff. And those people want an ordination process and, and, and are considered, you know, <clears throat> ministers in their area, but like they step outside of that and they're not ordained in another circle, for example. Right. So like you can be ordained through Scott Stedman's church of the cross, but the second you step outside of that, you're not, does that make sense? Like, so they, yeah. I've been, you know, I have friends that work at these churches where they're, they're ordained in their circle but if they wanted to go serve at the church of God in, you know, central Ohio, maybe they're not considered ordained in the church of God because they went through an ordination process through another church, but it's yeah. just through their church. Right. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and and, and kind of and even kind of looking at this idea of minister, I, I I thought of the name of Bart Ehrman, who is a New Testament. I guess he's a New Testament scholar. I've read a couple of his books at Anderson and undergrad. Um, but this was a guy who basically grew up in the church. Um, and then I think probably recently, I'd say probably within the last 10 years, he considers himself an agnostic, um, mainly because he really struggled with the philosophy of death and suffering. Uh, but this is a guy who still teaches at the University of North Carolina in the Religious Studies Department. But obviously, he identifies as someone who's agnostic or, or an atheist and um, someone who doesn't believe in God or in a, or in someone, in a, someone who's divine. And yet, I take this, so let's just kind of put the Gordon College approach. Here's a guy who clearly identifies as someone who's agnostic, who doesn't believe in God. If he was a professor of religious studies at Gorman College, they would say this guy's a minister. Now, would we or would anybody else be able to look at that same individual and say, yes, this person is a minister, even though he clearly says I'm a I'm an agnostic and identify as an agnostic and have no even though I ha grew up in the faith, I used to go to church, but I don't clearly call myself a minister. I don't even call myself a Christian at that matter, but because I work in a New Testament setting, would they define that guy as a, as a minister? North Carolina uh, University at Chapel Hill would basically say, well, no, this guy's not a minister. He is a New Testament scholar who looks at textual criticism. Um, but if he was at a place like, I don't know, Liberty University or Gordon College, they would say, yes, this guy's a minister. And I think when you look at that, just using that as kind of a example, and I don't think Bart Ehrman's going to listen to this podcast, but I'm sure if we were to ask him, do you see yourself as a minister? I'm sure he would probably say absolutely not. Regardless if he's working in North Carolina University or he's working at a Christian university like a Wheaton College or a Taylor University, he's probably going to say, no, I don't see myself as a minister. I see myself as a scholar, a New Testament scholar. Um, I'm sure if I went and talked to some of my professors at Anderson University, I think of, you know, I had Brian Dirk as my history professor. I had, um, you know, I had, um, oh, I can't think of his name, Professor Clark, who was my English professor. I even had, um, Professor Baird, who was my German professor, if I asked them, do you see yourself as a minister? They would probably say no. They would probably see that they would probably identify as Christians because they work at a university and their their values as a Christian reflects the values of Anderson University. But I don't think they would ever call themselves a minister because for them, being a minister is a special type of calling. It's a different calling. And there's a process within the Church of God movement that you have to go to become a reverend or a minister. Um, so yeah, it's, it'll be very interesting to see if this ever does make it up to the Supreme court, how the Supreme court's going to weigh in on this and based on their decision, what's going to be the ramifications of this and, and kind of give another example. Um, there was a, 
a family, a family at a church that I pastored at, and their niece was getting married. And they had everything. They're going to actually, they lived on this property in Waynesboro that overlooked the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a very beautiful setting. They're going to have the wedding at this couple's house. Well, about, about two weeks before they get married, I get a phone call from this lady and she tells me, hey, we have an issue. I go, what's the problem? Well, they have a minister and I guess they just like looked up ministers and they just found like a random minister who apparently, and I don't know, I guess there's these online places where if you want to be a minister, you could go online and you can get, you can, can get a you can get ordained and basically you could do weddings and funerals. Sure. However, this person is not recognized by the state of Virginia or the county as a recognized minister. So even though he can officiate the ceremony, he's not, he cannot sign legal documents to officially say this couple is married. So they said, well, will you, will you be able to be the, I guess, be the witness or be the official pastor to sign the document, even though I'm not officiating a ceremony, can I sign a document to make sure that this couple gets married? Because if not, then there's going to be issues. And I said, yeah, I, I can do that. So I went up there and I met with the couple and talked to them. I said, absolutely. You know, I can do this. I got to know them you know, personally and said, you know, I think everything's fine. I think, you know, not necessarily, I, I'm, I'm not going to be like, uh, yeah, I'm not signing this document. This is a train wreck ready to happen. Everything looked kosher. So I'm like, all right, I'll do it. So then the day of the wedding, I get there early as everyone's preparing so I can sign this piece of paper. Um, and I get there and I meet the minister and no joke. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm trying not to laugh. This minister comes out. This guy has a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He has tattoos over his body. I look at his car. He has a bottle of like Jack Daniels in the backseat of his car. And this is the guy who's officiating the wedding. And I'm sitting there. Who the heck approved this? Like, wait, is this a minister? Like, really? Or is this like someone who said, hey, you want to be a minister? Go through our program. You can do it. But I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, there's no way. If he went through the proper channels that I had to go through, there's no way they would say, yeah, this guy's a minister. I don't think this guy even believes, you know, and yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to judge, but I don't think this guy, I don't know what this guy's faith value is, but I'm at the point where I'm like, yeah, there's no way this guy's a minister. So I had to go sign this paper, talk to this guy. He officiated a wedding. I've, it's my signature on here. And, and they were legally able to get married so that, you know, when they file their taxes as a married couple, they could trace it back and say, yeah, they're married because here's the signature. Here's the marriage certificate. And I'm just sitting there like, what in the world? Like, so I, I so I bring that story up because if the Supreme Court says, well, no, this this Deweese Boyd is not a minister because she's a social worker who's a teaching social work at a Christian university. Technically, she is not a minister as defined by whatever legal definitions they want to throw on that. And if that's the case, what's that going to do to people who went through an ordination process just so that they can marry people, but they're not affiliated with any type of denomination whatsoever? Like that's going to have a ripple effect between not only you and me who are ministers, 
but even people who are ordained only to do certain weddings and funerals, but not necessarily lead a church. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's one of these things where you read it and you're thinking, okay, this is an easy shut in case case, but I can also see how it could get butchered and it can become this big, long legal process that is going to redefine the term minister and what that means. And it's going to have effects on those who are ordained in a denomination, but then those who work at a Christian university who may claim that they're ministers that it's like, well, no, you're not because, or yes, you are, or no, you're not depending on how this turns out. So it looks like it's a hot mess. It could become a hot mess very quickly, depending on how the Supreme court weighs in, if it ever gets up to the Supreme court. I feel like it was a hot mess without this article. Like just in our own, <laughs> no, seriously, like in our own like experiences, whether it's seminary or church God or or whatever, like uh-huh. it's I think it's I think it's difficult enough to get ordained as it is, right? Like I yeah. I have friends who work in Methodist churches and I think it's like a seven year process for them. Yeah. Whereas Church of God stuff took less what? It took me three years. It took me it took me five years and mainly because they lost my file. Yeah. They lost my file and it took longer. And then when I finally was ready to go get ordained in October, the the head of the minister committee of Central District finally got back to my mentoring pastor after years of saying, hey, I need Scott's file, I need Scott's file, I need Scott's file, literally months looking for this. The filing person got back to him and said, oh, by the way, I'm no longer the chair of the credentialing committee for Central anymore. And... Scott's not even conditioned or uh, not even commissioned or licensed. And I'm like, no, because I have my little card from Anderson saying that I am licensed. And so I'm thinking, okay. And then based on my mentoring process, pastor says, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter. You went through everything. You're going through ordination. You just got to, you just got to defend your, your, your statement of beliefs before the board. And I did that and I went through and I went through the whole process, but it was, it was a mess. And, it almost seemed like if everything, it could have went sideways real quickly. It's like, man, I don't want to be stuck in this process for another five years. Funny I, was enough. Told, I, I was told it's going to take a year or two. It took me five years and it wasn't anything on my end. It was just those in charge losing my file when they're trying to send it out to whoever. Um, funny enough, the last fall, I believe it was, uh, Scott, you know how you have to pay like the $40 for your, like your annual whatever yeah every year for church God ministries mm-hmm. i didn't know what that was and so last i think it was fall yeah it was last fall um i got a phone call and i said you know hello and they said it was church God ministries and they said that you know your annual renewal was due and i was like what do you mean my annual renewal and they said like your 40 dollars i'm like well what does this 40 dollars go to mm. And it wasn't like I was being ugly and it wasn't, I was just questioning what does this money go to? And Scott, I took it a step further. I said, what happens if I don't pay this? Like, and then I don't think they like that too well, just because I said, what happens if I don't pay this? <laughs> but they were like, I'm like, and I said, do I lose my, my credentialing? Do I, do I lose my credentials because I don't pay this $40? And they're like, well, if it comes to that, 
And I'm like, so I spent $1,500 of my own money for leadership focus and go through an ordination process that took over three years. And because I don't pay $40 a year, you're going to take my ordination. Well, well, no, that's not what we're saying. And it was like this back and forth. I wasn't trying to be difficult. I just wanted to know what yeah. my money went to. So, uh, you know, all that to say, like, it's, just, it's a mess. It's a mess without the Supreme Court of the United States getting into it. And it's just, and we're just talking, you and me, yeah. as Church of God guys about Church of God ministries and how that's a difficult process. And on the flip side, if you want to go do a wedding and you know, go print, a, you know, go get ordained online and print a certificate out from uh, Church of the Brethren of Las Vegas or whatever, and, <laughs> you know, you can go do weddings. But, uh, yeah. But when I got ordained, you know, I had to fill out a paperwork for the state of Ohio saying that I was clergy. Mm-hmm. And so they sent me like this little um, piece of paper Hard saying black, that, yeah. you know, this is my, this is your number. Meaning yeah. that like you're, you're uh, ordained clergy number 3,427 and you can do weddings. Yeah. In the state. Mm-hmm. In the state. So like, um and I think for a while too, like Scott, I think you had to like, if you did a wedding in a different state, you had to like do some sort of paperwork yeah, or something. So you could get a piece of paper so that, you know, you can perform the ceremony, even though you're ordained in yeah. the state. And, and and like, like even now I occasionally I'll go to the, because I was ordained in Ohio and I could do weddings and then I moved to Virginia. And then there was a couple that I've known for years. They wanted me to officiate the wedding. And luckily I was able to go back online and check and they said it was up to date. And I think that's interesting too, because I don't have to pay a fee to the state of Ohio to keep my minister's license active in the state of Ohio. Like for the most part, they're, they're all good with it. So it's like, Oh, cool. And actually I have to go check again. Cause I'm supposed to be officiating a wedding in October this year uh, for a buddy of mine. And I have to double check to see if my thing's still active, but I never got any paperwork or anything saying, oh, if you're no longer living in a state, you know, please let us know. It's like, hey, once you fill out your paperwork, you're done. I do know for when you have to register churches, because I had to do that a lot as a pastor and register my church with, you know, the Church of God yearbook. The main reason why we have to register that just to make sure that we can keep using their uh, the nationals like um, 501c3, because if you're not a recognized church of the Church of God, then you can't benefit off their 501c3 which okay you know that's good so you know paying i don't know 40 bucks for a church license so that you can be in the yearbook and you can be recognized as a church of god congregation and you can get the 501c3 okay i get that but i i'm like with you but like yeah if i don't pay my and there's some people who and again for those of you who are listening like the church of god had recently changed or updated some certain things within how you register as a pastor or like renew your license or renew your ordination, I guess. And there's some people who would do like automatic withdrawal and do it that way. And then it wasn't working properly. And then they get a message from, Hey, you're like three years behind on your registration. And these people are like, well, it shouldn't be because I put automatic withdrawals and, it should go through. So yeah, but that's a whole different conversation for another episode. But yeah, going back to this article, it does seem like, you know, defining what a pastor is, is difficult enough within denominationalism, whether, you know, regardless if you're Church of God or United Methodist, 
um, let alone when you have to have a American societal view of what a minister is and that that has to go before the Supreme Court. I think that's just is it just makes everything way more complicated. And and at this and I don't know if it's going to be. And I think what really makes it complicated is that you have a university who's basically saying to their staff, you can't do certain things because you're a minister. And they're basically saying you are a minister. Now, I'm going to take it a little bit step back. If I'm going to apply to be a social worker at Gordon College or a professor and I'm reading through their values. I'm reading through the faculty handbook. And it explicitly says within that handbook before I sign the contract that by signing this contract, you are a minister of Gordon College. I don't know legally if that's going to hold weight in court. But if I sign a document saying that I am a minister and because I'm a minister, there's certain values and certain things that I can and can't do as a minister of Gordon College, even though I'm teaching social work, then I think that's going to have some type of. But I also think that they can make that choice knowing ahead of time, right? Yeah. And like, plus, I mean, if I sign the contract and say yes, so I can get this job, then automatically I've submitted myself to this view and these values of Gordon College, which does explicitly state that I am a minister. And if I yeah. do that, then that's going to be another factor if this does go to the Supreme Court to weigh out that if I sign a contract within this own culture, within this own Christian bubble, that because I signed this, that I'm now going to acknowledge being a minister. Yeah. And that's going to kind of, I think that's going to be looking at a, you know, my wife being, you know, a former, uh, law student you know this is going to be kind of a basically a battle of words and how things are written up and how things are defined and it's just basically going to get to you know is the wording right and does this document hold up in court which most times some documents don't hold up in court especially if there's an egregious neglect or error on those who are in a position of power but it you know, time will tell. And it also depends on, you know, the views of those people who are on the Supreme Court, if they're going to lean to this side or if they're going to lean to that side with the ruling. So, so all in all, I think it's something that's going to be interesting and it's going to be a hot mess if it ever does get to the Supreme Court, which seems like it may possibly happen sometime down the road. Whether it's this year or next year, it's definitely going to have to be addressed at some point which will be interesting to see how that plays out yeah it's uh it's crazy <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> what i was just thinking about like what uh how many things actually make it to the supreme court oh yeah yeah absolutely um it says wow I just Google what percentage of cases make it to the Supreme Court. It says getting a case heard by the Supreme Court is considerably more difficult than gaining admission to Harvard. In 2010, there were 5,910 petitions for a right of sit. I'm going to butcher this. Right of certiorari filed 
with the Supreme Court, but cert was granted for only 165 cases. That is a success rate of only 2.8%. So only 2.8% of cases actually make it to the Supreme Court. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I think you got to break it down. The, 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 the big Supreme Court, right? And then you have your, your state, individual state Supreme Courts. Mm-hmm. And then you have the local courts. And, but yeah, this article was in, in reference to the Supreme Court. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing. You know, it also goes how much money are you willing to spend to go through local court, state court, Supreme Court? Because you usually have stuff in civil court. Then you go to the Supreme Court of the state. And then you can go in further to the federal Supreme Court. And either they're going to say, yeah, we'll look at it. Or you're going to say no. And they'll send it back down to the state Supreme Court. And then kind of let it decide what's going to happen there. If they're going to review the case. Or if they're just going to say nope. And then just let it die. Or make the decision final. All right. So guys. I don't know if anyone will listen to this podcast episode, but I think it's a good one to really look at because, you know, we have to look at that. There's a lot of things out there, a bunch, um, you know, there's a lot of things out there that could possibly affect those of us in ministry that we don't really know about. So I think this was a great, interesting article to kind of break outside of the normal topics we discussed here and really just look at something where, you know, how religion in our modern society, how some of those themes and some of those um, some of those cultures can collide and how that plays out. So, guys, again, thank you so much for, again, listening to the Scott Summit podcast. I definitely appreciate all of you. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week and we'll be back on with a new podcast soon. Everybody, I hope you take care. Bye.